Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but we would love to meet you in person. All are welcome, and that includes you. So if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service at the corner of Arthur Ashe Boulevard and Grove in the historic synagogue across from the art museum. Can't make it in person? No problem. We are also live streaming on YouTube. Contact our administrator at tikvatdirector at gmail.com for the link during the week or contact us on our website tikvatisrael.com. There, you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. It's everyone's favorite time right now. What time is that? Story time! Yay! Today we will begin with a story based on a folktale from India called The Blind Men and the Elephant. All right, here we go. Long ago and far away, there lived six blind men. Although these men could not see, they learned about the world in many ways. They could hear the music of the flute with their ears. They could feel the softness of silk with their fingers. They could smell the scent of food cooking and taste its spicy flavor. Together they took care of their home and they were very happy. Then one day, the blind men heard some exciting news. The prince had received a new elephant at his palace. Off they went. It was a long walk to the palace. The blind men grew hot and thirsty, but they could not stop. They could not wait to touch the elephant. Finally, they reached the palace. A guard came to greet them. The blind men told him why they had come. Of course you may touch the elephant, said the guard. I am sure the prince will not mind. The guard led the six men to the animal, which stood quietly in the garden. The first blind man touched the elephant's side. It is strong and wide, he thought. I think an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man touched the elephant's long round trunk. Oh, it is just like a snake, he decided. The third man grabbed the elephant's smooth ivory tusk. Why, an elephant is as sharp as a spear. The fourth man held the elephant's leg. He thought it was as round and firm as a tree. The fifth blind man held the elephant's ear. The ear was very, very big. The elephant flapped it gently. The fifth man laughed. It's just like a fan. (laughs) The sixth blind man touched the animal's long, thin tail. An elephant is like a rope, he thought. But by now it was midday. The sun burned hot in the sky. The guard took the six men over to a tall, shady tree. Why don't you rest here, he said. I will bring you some water. While they waited, the six blind men talked about the elephant. No one told me that an elephant is like a wall, said the first man. A wall, said the second man. No, no, it is like a snake. The third man shook his head. An elephant is clearly like a spear. What, said the fourth man? An elephant is like a tree. A fifth man started to shout. A wall, a snake, a tree, a spear. You are all wrong. An elephant is like a fan. No, it is like a rope, yelled the sixth blind man. The sound of angry voices filled the garden. It was the sound of the six blind men fighting about the elephant. A wall, a snake, a spear, a tree, a fan, a rope. I'm right. All the noise woke the prince. He had been taking his midday nap which I am going to do this Shabbat, by the way. Quiet, he called. I'm trying to sleep. We are sorry, said the first blind man, but we cannot agree on what an elephant is like. We each touch the same animal, but to each of us, the animal is completely different. The prince spoke gently. The elephant is a very large animal. Its side is like a wall. Its trunk is like a snake. Its tusks are like spears. Its legs are like trees. Its ears are like fans, and its tail is like a rope. So you are all right, but 
you were all wrong too. For each of you touched only one part of the animal. To know what an elephant is really like, you must put all those parts together. Yes, that's it. The blind men thought about the prince's words. They realized he was very wise. I will tell you something else about the elephant. It is very good to ride on. Now you will ride on it all the way home. So they did. (laughs) And they all agreed that was the best part of all. The end. Yay. So what did we learn from this story? We learned that we need to put all the pieces together to get the full understanding of something. This is one of the principles of Bible interpretation. Sometimes folks take one verse out of context to justify a strange teaching. But the scripture as a whole tells a beautiful narrative. It shows the purposes of God on the earth. When we isolate verses or don't look at the larger context, we can get way off track and confused. However, when we take the whole thing together, we realize how individual parts contribute to a consistent narrative about God's love. How we read the Bible matters because we can misrepresent the Lord in our zeal without understanding. The more we understand the original intent of the Bible, the whole narrative, the more we can follow the Lord and be conformed to his image. The more we can represent a loving God to a hurting world, for we are his ambassadors to Israel and the nations. As I mentioned in my sermon last week, How to Understand the Bible, Part 1, there are some barriers to understanding the Bible. It's in a different culture, a different language, a different place, a different audience, from a different time, and from a different context than 21st century America. Right? Some of you were here last week, remember going to that wonderful, awesome coffee shop with the coffee that brought life and did your taxes, but there were a few uh, problems, weren't there? A few obstacles, right? It was halfway across the world, they spoke a different language, and so we have to use some tools to overcome those obstacles. But have no fear, we have some beautiful tools to help us bridge these gaps. So now let's review some of the tools of understanding the Bible from last week's sermon. So this is what we have. We have the Holy Spirit. That's always good. We have commentaries. We have study Bibles. We have the rabbis like Rashi that have studied the text over many centuries. We have resources like the Bible Project, some of which I used for the development of this sermon. We have the literary genre, knowing what type of book it is, what type of literature it is. If you're reading a poem, that's going to be a particular thing. Connections to liturgy and other scriptures. What are the hyperlinks? What are the other scriptures that this is like that can inform it? And where does it appear in our liturgy? Then we have pardes, which is a traditional Jewish form of interpretation. The pashat, the simple meaning, the remez, the allegorical meaning, darash, a sought-out meaning, and sof, the mystical meaning. So in addition to these tools, which I will mention most of these today, we will add a new one, and that is the biblical narrative as a whole. It gets its own page up there because it's so important. So this week's Parsha has uh, something very important as well. It has the famous Ten Commandments. Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Okay, good. So we're going to address an intriguing passage of this using our tools and using especially our new tool. Let's dive into Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Do not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to them. Do not let anyone make you serve them. For I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous or zealous God, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my mitzvot or commandments. So the first commandment is about avoiding idols and worshiping God alone. The reason given is kind of jealousy or zealousness of the Lord. And then there's an interesting statement about the iniquity or sin being visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Let's start there, right? That seems a little strange, doesn't it? Should I be blamed for the sins of my parents and grandparents? Does this mean also if it's five generations back, I'm off the hook? Should we say, well, my great, 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 great grandfather was a mean, lying thief, but that was more than three or four generations, so I think I'm okay. Right? Is that what this is about? I don't think so. The rabbis, of course, process this passage over many years. Rabbinic writings are one of the tools that we have from last week. The Talmud is rabbinic writing that is not on the same level as scripture, but it is helpful for interpretation and making connections as it reflects the wisdom of Jewish thinkers who meditated on the Torah. They prayed through it and they processed it with God and with each other. So this section of the Talmud is called Berachot 7a and it's dealing with this passage. The Gemara expands upon these righteous and wicked individuals. The master said, The righteous person who prospers is a righteous person, the son of a righteous person. The righteous person who suffers is a righteous person, the son of a wicked person. The Gemara asks, Is it so that one is always punished for his ancestors' transgressions? Isn't it written, He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generations? Exodus 34. And it is written elsewhere. This is a counterpoint. Fathers shall not die for their children, and children shall not be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall die for his own transgression, Deuteronomy 24. And the Gemara raises a contradiction between the two verses, which is a, really an apparent contradiction because all of these can be resolved. The Gemara resolves the contradiction. This is not difficult. This verse from Exodus, which states that God punishes descendants for the transgression of their ancestors, refers to a case where they adopt the actions of of their ancestors as their own. Do you catch that? It's where they're doing the same thing as their fathers and grandfathers. While this verse from Deuteronomy, which states that descendants are not punished for the actions of their ancestors, refers to a case where they do not adopt the actions of their ancestors as their own. As it is stated, I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, etc. As Pastor Pete Scazzaro puts it in his Emotionally Healthy Spirituality podcast, Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa is in my bones. I really like that. <laughs> in other words, if we're not aware of it, we can perpetuate the sins of our parents and grandparents. But our fate is not sealed, we just have to be aware. The point of this verse is to be aware of our family history so we can follow God's commandments and not just blindly do the evil that the generation before did. We can change course. The rabbis cross-reference this issue with another verse. Did you notice that? They're using scripture to inform scripture. Fathers are not to be executed for the children, and children are not to be put to death for their fathers. This is the tool of using other scriptures to inform a passage. The Bible also has genre and literary devices, as we mentioned last week. The Hebrew Bible makes comparisons to make a point for the sake of understanding how different two different things are, to show a contrast. Here's the verse again in context from Exodus 25 and 6. 
For I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous or zealous God, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The point is this. This is what the underlying intent of the scripture. God's anger is so small compared to his compassion. His punishment is like nothing compared to his mercy. It's like comparing a few generations to thousands of generations. It's incomparable. It's not about counting generations or making sure you're five generations away and then you're safe. That's not what it is. Or being punished for something that we didn't do. It's about showing the grandeur of God's loving kindness compared to his judgment. Taking another step back, we can try to understand God's heart with the Ten Commandments. You see, many folks read the Bible and the Torah and the Ten Commandments as like a set of rules, and they see God as like a taskmaster. They say that the Ten Commandments are shackles that we must obey or face the punishment. Sometimes we may even believe parts of this in our mind without being aware of it, but this works theology ignores the larger narrative and the intent of the scriptures. The laws of the Torah are instruction. That's what Torah means. It means instruction. It doesn't mean rules. It means teaching. And they are life. They are meant to help us and draw us near to God. Let's look at one way to summarize the whole of scripture, and then we'll insert the Ten Commandments into that narrative. Think about, for a moment, the various covenants or promises that God makes with humans in the Bible. And then we can start to see a pattern. The first covenant is with Noah, and thus all of humanity and really all of creation. God promises to never again destroy the earth with a flood, and he gives a sign of a rainbow as a seal of this promise. From this episode, this is what we understand. So we start with Noah, and this is what we understand. It is not God's purpose to destroy or condemn the world harshly, but what? To ultimately redeem it and rescue humanity and all of creation. So all the rest of the scriptures should be able to be aligned with that purpose, including the Torah and all the other commandments and all the other covenants. The second covenant God makes with is, do we know? Abraham, all right, you get a Torah point. And from here on out, God's covenants will be with Israel, with the Jewish people. In Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those that bless you, I will curse those that curse you, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So here we can add clarity to the covenant with Noah. It's almost like an extension of that revelation. So we have Noah, which is all of humanity, and then we have Abraham, which represents the Jewish people. God's purpose is not to destroy the earth, but to rescue it. We're familiar there. And he plans to rescue humanity through blessing the descendants of Abraham and their blessing the nations. Does that make sense? So we're continuing this, this story. This ultimately becomes a relationship of interdependence, distinction, and mutual blessing between the Jewish people descended from Abraham and all the families of the earth, the nations. The third promise that God makes with humanity is again with Israel. What's the third major covenant that we see? After, so we got Noah, then we got Abraham, now we got Moshe, yes, Moses, okay? So he makes it again with Israel, but through Moses. The Ten Commandments on the two tablets that we mentioned in this week's Torah portion are at the heart 
of the Torah. They are the building blocks, which break down into two sections. The first part of the Ten Commandments has to do with loving God, and the second part of the Ten Commandments has to do with loving our neighbor. Are these merely a set of rules? No way. God is zealous for his people, as we saw. Seen in context with the whole narrative of the Bible, the Ten Commandments are more like a marriage contract between the Jewish people and God. He has taken them to be his people. He has rescued them. And thus, they are to trust him and learn to walk in his ways. Looking back on our scripture from the beginning, it makes a little bit more sense why it's talking about God's kindness, why it's talking about God's zealousness for his people that they would worship only him. God rescued Israel and took them to be his own people like a marriage. Now he is zealous for their affection and gives them counsel about not following the mistakes of their fathers and mothers. It's all connected. He doesn't want them to stumble by practicing the evil that their ancestors did. He wants them to be holy unto him because he is their God and he rescued them. So taking the first two covenants into account, now we have this. Now we have a third. God's purpose is not to destroy the earth, but to rescue it. And he plans to rescue humanity through the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. He redeems them from slavery and gives them his loving instructions, the Torah, so that they can represent God to the nations by following his commandments, summarized by loving God and loving their neighbor, the essence of the Ten Commandments. So now the Ten Commandments have a really amazing place in the whole narrative of the Bible. It's not just a set of rules. The Israelites were to follow the Torah in such a way as to show the nations the love of God. And we see this very particularly in the kingdom of Solomon, where they're following, at least in the first part, <laughs> before he kind of goes off the rails and does go into idolatry. But in the first part of Solomon's reign, he's following the Torah and there's prosperity. And the queen of Sheba, which is the queen of Ethiopia, comes and looks at this and she's like, wow, this is so amazing. Why do you have so much prosperity? Why do you have so much peace? You have peace with your enemies. You have peace in the courts. And he is able to show that it's because they're loving God and they're following God's Torah. So this is an inkling of the beauty of God's Torah and the beauty of the love of God going out to the nations. So imagine if Solomon had been wholehearted in this, right? Of course, he had as a heart problem as we all do. Back to our story here. The Israelites were to follow the Torah in such a way, as I mentioned, to show the nations the love of God. The fourth main covenant God makes is with King David in 2 Samuel 7, promising to give him a son to rule over Israel for just a little while. Forever, yeah, I like it. This cannot be solely about Solomon. That's, you know, David's literal son. Why? Because Solomon dies and Solomon doesn't rule forever over Israel. So it has to be a future descendant. And interestingly, the most common title for Yeshua in the New Testament is what? Son of David because he is the fullness of all of these covenants. This is our narrative summary so far. And I know it's a little bit repetitive, but you can see how it's all connected. We have Noah, we have Abraham, we have Moses, Israel, and then we have David. God's purpose is not to destroy the earth, but to rescue it. And he plans to rescue humanity through the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. He will redeem the nations through the Jewish people as they follow his commandments of love. And he will bring them a Messiah, a king, descended from David to teach them his ways and bring them back to God. The fifth promise, the new covenant, is also with the Jewish people, amazingly. It's with Israel, as described in Jeremiah 31. And then 
it includes the nations later on as they cling to the God of Israel and the people of Israel, and we see that in the Gospels. But this is from Jeremiah. He's describing the new covenant, and in the same passage, he includes a little bit about fathers and children and how they shouldn't be judged for the sins of their fathers. It's very interesting. When those days come, they will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This was a proverb to say that the children were suffering because of what the fathers did. Rather, each will die for his own sin. Everyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. This is showing the justice of God that he doesn't treat us for the sins of our ancestors or for our children. He deals with us individually because he's just. And then right after this, it talks about the new covenant or the renewed covenant. Here the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. This was the covenant with who? It was through Moses, right? Because they, for their part, violated my covenant, even though I, for my part, was a husband to them. Again, it's that husband imagery. It's not a set of rules. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I will put my Torah within them, and then what? Write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He will take his Torah and put it in our hearts so that what? We can actually do it. No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother, no Adonai, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Amazing, right? Interestingly, this deals with, as we said, the first part, people accountable for their own sins, not their parents, and then moves into the renewed covenant for Israel. God will write his Torah on the hearts of his people in the renewed covenant. So here's a summary of all of them together, which gives us an overall sense in some ways of what the Bible is all about. This is one picture of the whole elephant, as it were. So we have Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant. Uh, again, as, as I said, the last four are all with Israel. And uh, uh, the last one, the new covenant, is extended to the nations in the Gospels. But in Jeremiah, it's described as the new covenant with Israel. God's purpose, <laughs> I feel like I've said this before, is not to destroy the earth, but to rescue it. And he plans to rescue humanity through the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. He will redeem humanity through the Jewish people as they follow his commandments of love. And he will bring them a Messiah descended from David to teach them his ways and bring them back to God. The Messiah, son of David, will write the Torah on their hearts, including the 10 commandments this week, so that they can actually do it. Humanity as a whole, including the Jewish people, we all have a heart problem not obeying God's commandments and not loving God and our neighbor. So we all need the Lord to renew our hearts and to forgive our sins once and for all. Isn't that what Jeremiah said he would do? So that's a description of the new covenant. It is not hard to see how Yeshua fulfills all of these promises. As with the Noah covenant, what did I say? It's not God's purpose to destroy the earth, but to rescue it. That goes back to near the beginning of Genesis. John 3.17 puts it this way. The Messiah came not to condemn the world, but to what? Save it. Isn't that the same purpose that God had through the covenant with Noah? Yeshua is the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant because he is the greatest possible blessing to the nations. 
he is the one man Israel that is the hugest, most greatest blessing to the nations possible, making the nations children of Abraham by trusting in him. The Lord said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What other descendant of Abraham could we say that is true of? More than Yeshua. There is no other. He makes the nations children of Abraham by trusting in him together with the Jewish people. This is how Paul explains it in Ephesians 2, speaking to the Gentiles, speaking to the nations. Also when he came, he announced as good news, shalom, peace to you far off and shalom to those nearby. News that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Who's he talking to? The nations. Why? Because, on the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people, with Israel, and members of God's family. Isn't that what God said he would do through Abraham and his descendant? Yeshua is the fullness of the covenant through Moses. He is the living Torah who fulfilled the commandments perfectly. He's the embodiment of perfect love of God and perfect love of neighbor. He's the fullness of the Ten Commandments made into a person. Yeshua is the fullness of the covenant with King David. I mean, I feel like I don't even have to explain that one, right? <laughs> He's the descendant who rules over Israel and the nations forever, which Solomon could not do. And he is the one who inaugurates the new covenant, which is the fullness of all the other four. He enables the Jewish people to overcome their hard problem and to follow God's Torah by trusting in him. And he enables the nations to do the same and to become children of Abraham through that same trust. This is the scene when Yeshua celebrated the Passover meal right before he died on the cross in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Yeshua took a piece of matzah, made the barucha, broke it, gave it to the Talmudim, his students, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Also, he took a cup of wine, made the barucha, gave it to them, and saying, all of you drink from it. This is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant. My blood shed on behalf of many so that they may have their sins forgiven. Why is he talking about their sins forgiven? Where does he get that? He gets it from Jeremiah 31. Where does he get a new covenant from? Did he just make it up? He did not. He got it from Jeremiah 31. Yeshua was referencing the new covenant laid out in Jeremiah to renew the hearts of Israel and the nations and to forgive their sins once and for all. Hallelujah. Baruch Hashem. So a covenantal narrative where we see God's purpose for humanity and the Jewish people is a fuller way to describe the Bible. And it's a fuller way to see the purpose for something like the Ten Commandments. This is the whole elephant. Aren't you glad that we have the whole elephant to explore? We are delving into the overall intent for the biblical authors and the intent of God so we don't get lost in the weeds when we're interpreting. May we continue to seek out the faithfulness of God through his inspired word, applying tools to understand the overall narrative and individual challenging passages. May the Lord give us wisdom and understanding and may his covenantal love leap off the page into our hearts as we read and study his word. Amen. Avinu, our Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would open up the scriptures as we read it. Help us to understand it. Help us to make time to read it or listen to it on our phones. 
and to study it, to understand it, and bring us uh, good teachers, Lord, that can help explain things to us when we don't understand, and good brothers and sisters that we can process your word with when we're confused. And help us to see your overall purposes, Lord, in the scriptures, that it would leap off the page so that we can see your purposes in our lives, because you have given us a purpose, you've called us, you have directed our steps as we trust you, Lord, so that we can apply your word to our lives and see you living and working in our lives. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen.